When Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby, everyone was quick to realize that the person who was allegedly the lone assassin of the president was now dead. This meant that the American people would never be able to hear a defense from Oswald. Based on Oswald's claims about being an innocent patsy, he surely would have attempted to prove his innocence. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I'm just a black guy. I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Even the Warren Report states the obvious about this moment in American history, saying, quote, Almost immediately speculation arose that Ruby had acted on behalf of members of a conspiracy who had planned the killing of President Kennedy and wanted to silence Oswald, end quote. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Welcome to the end of innocence. I'm your host, John Young. After his arrest, Ruby said that he had been distraught over President Kennedy's death and had helped the city of Dallas redeem itself in the eyes of the public, and that he was saving Mrs. Kennedy the discomfort of coming back for a trial. He also claimed that he shot Oswald in the spur of the moment when the opportunity presented itself without considering any reason for doing so. Ruby told the FBI that he was in mourning Friday and Saturday. He said that he cried when he heard that the president was shot, quote, cried a great deal, end quote. He explained that his grief was caused by him being an admirer of President Kennedy and the Kennedy family. The anguish over the assassination, Ruby stated, finally, quote, reached the point of insanity, end quote, suddenly compelling him to shoot when Oswald walked in front of him in the basement that Sunday morning. When Jack Ruby went to trial for the murder of Oswald, his defense was that he had psychomotor epilepsy and that the gun was fired unintentionally because Ruby did not have control of his actions. So when given the opportunity to go on record as having killed Oswald to help Jackie Kennedy or to avenge President Kennedy's murder, Ruby instead took the position that his shooting of Oswald was completely unintentional. Ruby asked Dallas attorney Tom Howard to represent him. 
Howard accepted and asked if Ruby could think of anything that might damage his defense. Ruby responded that there would be a problem if a man by the name of Davis should come up. Ruby told his attorney that he had been involved with Davis, who was a gun runner entangled in anti-Castro efforts. Reporter Seth Cantor, who is an expert on Jack Ruby, speculated in 1978 that the man by the name of Davis that Ruby mentioned to attorney Tom Howard may have been Thomas Eli Davis III, a CIA-connected mercenary. Later, Ruby replaced attorney Tom Howard with prominent San Francisco defense attorney Melvin Belli, who agreed to represent him pro bono. Ruby broke into tears at his bond hearing in January 1964 as he talked to reporters regarding the assassination of Kennedy. He said that he could not understand, quote, how a great man like that could be lost, end quote. On March 14, 1964, Ruby was convicted of murder with malice and was sentenced to death. An historic 23 days end in a Dallas courtroom as Jack Ruby is taken in to hear the verdict in his trial for the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald, accused assassin of President Kennedy. The charge had been murder with malice, the defense insanity. The ruling that barred all cameras from the courtroom is lifted as Judge Joe B. Brown prepares to hear from the jury their decision of the case. The jurors had heard the final summations in the early morning hours, and they had deliberated for a little over two hours before returning to the jury box. Now, the News of the Day cameraman records the judge's words in the tense final moments of a drama that began in national tragedy last November. Ladies and gentlemen, you have reached a verdict. May I have it, Sheriff, please? We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder with malice as charged in the indictment and assess his punishment at death. Signed, Max E. Causey Foreman. So say you all. Is that your unanimous verdict? Will all of you whose verdict that is please hold up your right hands? All right, Sheriff, he's your prisoner. The prisoner is led back to the cell where he will be held until the final disposition of his appeal. Reporters hear a distraught and emotional attorney Belli reiterate his determination to appeal the verdict. This must be made to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Further appeals that could drag on for two years or so could be made as high as the United States Supreme Court. But the first crucial judgment has been rendered against Jack Ruby. Ruby's conviction was overturned by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals on the grounds that an oral confession of premeditation made while in police custody should have been ruled inadmissible because it violated a Texas criminal statute. The court also ruled that the venue should have been changed to a Texas county other than the one in which the high-profile crime had been committed. During the six months following the Kennedy assassination, Ruby repeatedly asked to speak to the members of the Warren Commission. The commission initially showed no interest, but Ruby's sister, Eileen, wrote letters to the commission and her letters became public. The Warren Commission then agreed to talk to Ruby. In June 1964, Chief Justice Earl Warren, Representative Gerald Ford of Michigan, and other commission members went to Dallas to see Ruby. Ruby asked Warren several times to take him to Washington, D.C., saying that, quote, my life is in danger here, end quote, and that he wanted an opportunity to make additional statements. Ruby added, quote, I want to tell the truth and I can't tell it here, end quote. Earl Warren told Ruby that he would be unable to comply because many legal barriers would need to be overcome and public interest in the situation would be too heavy. Warren also told Ruby that the commission would have no way of protecting him since it had no public powers. On a quiet summer Sunday, the Chief Justice of the United States stood peering out the sixth floor window of the school book depository building. Just seven months before, an assassin had waited at the same window to kill President Kennedy. Chief 
Chief Justice Warren was one of several Warren Commission members to visit the assassination site. He spent two hours in the building to see with his own eyes the places he had heard about from witnesses. Then the Chief Justice did something unexpected and unprecedented in American history. He went to the Dallas County Jail to visit Jack Ruby, a man whose case may someday reach the Supreme Court. For three hours, Justice Warren questioned Ruby. He apparently came away satisfied that Ruby had not known or seen Oswald before the assassination. The Warren report issued this fall contained a few surprises. The commission said it was convinced beyond doubt that Lee Harvey Oswald killed the president, that Oswald was working alone without the help or planning of any other person. The commission was critical of the FBI for failing to warn other police agencies of Oswald's whereabouts, and it was critical of Dallas police for having permitted Ruby access to the basement where he shot Oswald. The Warren Report became a bestseller circulated throughout the free world, and it did much to dispel rumors, particularly those in Europe, that the assassination had been a part of an international plot. The Chief Justice came to Dallas and left without saying one word to newsmen. Ruby was also upset that the Warren Commission had hid the results of Ruby's polygraph test. Here's Ruby talking about it in an interview from September 9, 1965. I wanted to get this out to you because they never released my results of my polygraph test. That was uh, deleted from the Warren report. Why was that deleted? I don't know why. I insisted upon the polygraph right from the beginning. As a matter of fact, certain questions I created and originated that they would ask me at the time. They spent nine hours with me at the time, and yet the finality, the finality of the results of the test, they stated they refused to read, to divulge the, the answers that I had given, whether they're true or false, due to the fact of my mental condition. Eventually, the appellate court agreed with Ruby's lawyers that he should be granted a new trial. On October 5, 1966, the court ruled that his motion for a change of venue before the original trial court should have been granted. Ruby's conviction and death sentence were overturned. Arrangements were underway for a new trial to be held in February 1967 in Wichita Falls, Texas, but Ruby was admitted to Parkland Hospital in Dallas on December 9, 1966, suffering from pneumonia. A day later, doctors discovered cancer in his liver, lungs, and brain. His condition rapidly deteriorated. Ruby died of a pulmonary embolism on January 3, 1967 at Parkland Hospital, the same facility where both Oswald and Kennedy died. He was buried beside his parents in Westlawn Cemetery in Norridge, Illinois. Death came to Ruby at 10.30 a.m. Central Standard Time. Many medical examiner Dr. Earl Rose immediately performed an autopsy. The autopsy findings uh, showed uh, extensive tumor involvement involvement of uh, both of the lungs. There are also metastases in the regional lymph nodes invading the lungs as well as tumor had traveled to the liver. In addition, the terminal event was related to a blood clot that formed in the right leg. In the right leg, that is correct. The blood clot broke loose and went to the lung and this was the terminal event or the immediate cause of death. Lawyer Phil Burleson, who represented Ruby, said the reversal of Ruby's death sentence left Ruby without a conviction on his record. Uh, we're 
with the defendant dead, there there are no charges, and within a matter of, I'm sure, days or weeks, Mr. Wade's office will file a motion with the court to dismiss the charges. And I think it's significant that if there is anything good about Jack's death, at least from his standpoint, he died not a convicted man. The Ruby family at Parkland Hospital included a brother, Earl Ruby of Detroit, and two sisters, Eileen Kaminsky of Chicago and Eva Grant of Dallas. The way that Ruby died along with the testimony from other people that support a conspiracy makes this case all the more interesting. First, we have the potential foreknowledge of Oswald's murder by George Senator. According to reporter South Cantor, Ruby's roommate George Senator called Dallas attorney Jim Martin from a payphone near the Eatwell Cafe and asked Martin to represent his friend Jack Ruby for murdering Lee Harvey Oswald. Senator placed this call minutes before the news came over the radio that Oswald had been shot, making it appear as though Senator had more knowledge of the event. Next, there's Detective Don Archer's description of Ruby's behavior upon hearing that Oswald was dead. Detective Archer was one of the first people who saw Ruby immediately after he shot Oswald. Here's Detective Don Archer describing Ruby's behavior in the 1988 documentary The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Behavior to begin with, he was very hyper. He was sweating profusely. I could see his heart. Of course, we had stripped him down for security purposes. He asked me for one of my cigarettes, so I gave him a cigarette. Finally, uh, after about two hours had elapsed, which put it around 1 p.m., the head of the Secret Service came up, and I conferred with him, and he told me that Oswald had, in effect, died, and uh, it should shock him because it, it would mean the death penalty. So I returned, I said, Jack, it looks like it's going to be the electric chair for you. Instead of being shocked, he became calm. He quit sweating. His heart slowed down. I asked him if he wanted a cigarette, and he advised me he didn't smoke. And I was just astonished that this was a complete difference in behavior of what I would expect. I would say that his life had depended on him getting Oswald. He made the statement, we are going to kill him. Uh, which leads me to believe that this was not a spontaneous thing that happened on the spur of the moment. He was watching Oswald coming out of the door, and all of a sudden he decided to shoot him. I do not believe that. I think this was a planned event with him being the man to do the shooting. For researchers and conspiracy theorists, hearing that Ruby looked relieved at finding out that Oswald had died is one more fact to confirm that Ruby was killing Oswald on behalf of someone else, presumably someone who Ruby feared. The most significant evidence that we have regarding Ruby's motive comes from things that Ruby himself said. In Ruby's confidential psychiatric evaluation documents from 1965, Ruby told psychiatrist Warner Tudor that the assassination of President Kennedy was, quote, an act of overthrowing the government, and that he knew who had President Kennedy killed, end quote. Ruby also told Tudor, quote, I am doomed. I do not want to die, but I am not insane. I was framed to kill Oswald, end quote. Then there's the testimony of Al Maddox, a Dallas County deputy sheriff whose duty was to guard Ruby both in jail and when he was later taken to Parkland Hospital before he died. Maddox claims that Ruby gave him a note that said Ruby was part of a large conspiracy. Here's Maddox in an interview in 1996. Jack Ruby was dying or getting sick, I believe it was 1967. Um, he reached up and put a little note in your hand, didn't he? Mm -hmm. yeah, he sure did. He sure did. He and Melvin Bella, I believe, were together at the time, and he was still 
He was ambulatory. He could walk then. He was still in pretty good shape, but he was sweating an awful lot, and his hand was, was wet where he had this note palmed in his hand, and when he shook hands with me, uh, I knew he wanted me to read a note, and sure enough, it was a letter that Jack wrote saying that it was a conspiracy, and uh, his motive was to silence Oswald. Then there's this. Ruby conducted a brief televised news conference in March 1965, a year after his conviction. Here's Ruby surrounded by his lawyers in front of the press. People have, have so much to gain and, and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the true facts come of our boards to the, to the world. Part of that interview is really hard to understand, so here's what Ruby says. Ruby states, quote, Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred and my motives. The people who had so much to gain and had such an ulterior motive for putting me in the position I'm in will never let the true facts come above board to the world. A reporter then asks, Are these people in very high positions, Jack? And Ruby responds, Yes. End quote. Jack Ruby is seen in many important places that historic weekend in Dallas, but yet the Warren Commission wants us to believe he is not an important figure in this case. He's allegedly seen in Dealey Plaza, at Parkland Hospital, and at the Texas Theater on the day of the assassination. He's seen at least three times at the Dallas Police Department during that weekend before shooting Oswald. The Warren Commission says they found no evidence linking Ruby's killing of Oswald with any broader conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. In 1964, the Warren Commission provided a detailed biography of Ruby's life and activities to help determine whether he was involved in a conspiracy to assassinate the president. The commission indicated that there was, quote, not a significant link between Ruby and organized crime or any other organization, end quote, and said he acted independently in killing Oswald. Many critics have not accepted the conclusions of the Warren Commission and have proposed several other theories. White House correspondent Seth Cantor was a passenger in Kennedy's motorcade. He testified that he had visited Parkland Hospital after Kennedy was shot and that he felt a tug on his coat as he entered the hospital at about 1.30 p.m. He turned around to see Jack Ruby, who called him by his first name and shook his hand. He said that he had become acquainted with Ruby while he was a reporter for the Dallas Times-Herald newspaper. According to Cantor, Ruby asked him if he thought it would be a good idea for him to close his nightclubs for the next three nights because of the tragedy, and Cantor responded without thinking that doing so would be a good idea. Ruby denied that he had been at Parkland Hospital, and the Warren Commission dismissed Cantor's testimony. The commission concluded that, quote, Cantor probably did not see Ruby at Parkland Hospital, end quote, and that he may have been mistaken about both the time and the place that he saw Ruby. But in 1979, the House Select Committee on Assassinations re-examined Cantor's testimony and stated, quote, The Warren Commission concluded that Cantor was mistaken about his Parkland encounter with Ruby, but this committee determined he was probably not, end quote. Cantor also reported that Ruby might have tampered with evidence while at Parkland. Cantor researched the Ruby case for years. He wrote in his book titled, Who Was Jack Ruby? The mob was Ruby's friend, and Ruby could well have been paying off an IOU the day he was used to kill Lee Harvey Oswald. 
Ruby stated to Chief Justice Earl Warren in their June 7, 1964 session, quote, I have been used for a purpose, end quote. It would not have been hard for the mob to maneuver Ruby through the ranks of a few negotiable police officers. The House Select Committee on Assassinations wrote in its 1979 final report, Ruby shooting of Oswald was not a spontaneous act, and that it involved at least some premeditation. The committee believed that it was less likely that Ruby entered the police basement without assistance, even though the assistance may have been provided with no knowledge of Ruby's intentions. The committee was troubled by the apparently unlocked doors along the stairway route and the removal of security guards from the area of the garage nearest the stairwell shortly before the shooting. There is also evidence that the Dallas Police Department withheld relevant information from the Warren Commission concerning Ruby's entry to the scene of the Oswald transfer. The fact that Jack Ruby was close with the Dallas Police Department isn't disputed. The question is just how close are we talking? Did he happen to casually know a few cops? Or was there some deeper connection between Ruby and the Dallas PD? So what exactly was Ruby's relationship with the Dallas Police? The Warren Report denies that there was any complicity between Ruby and the Dallas Police to allow him to enter the building to shoot Oswald that Sunday morning. Regarding Ruby's relationship with police officers, the Warren Report says, quote, Ruby was known to have a wide acquaintanceship with Dallas policemen and to seek their favor. According to testimony from many sources, he gave free coffee at his clubs to many policemen while they were on duty and free admission and discounts on beverages when they were off duty. Although Chief Curry's estimate that approximately 25 to 50 of the 1,175 men in the Dallas Police Department knew Ruby may be too conservative, the commission found no evidence of any suspicious relationships between Ruby and any police officer, end quote. So how many cops does the average person know anyway? One fact that sheds light on that question is that of the 75 cops who were present when Oswald was killed, at least 40 of them knew Jack Ruby. But Chief Curry writes that off as no big deal. A great deal has been written about the uh, relationship of the Dallas Police Department with Jack Ruby. Uh, we have 1,200 men in our department, and we uh, had each man to submit a report regarding his knowledge or acquaintance with Jack Ruby. Less than 50 men even knew Jack Ruby. Whether Ruby knew 600 cops or only 50, either way, he knew a lot more than the average person. It's obvious Ruby used those relationships with the Dallas police to gain access to stalk and kill Oswald. Lieutenant Billy Grammer was a dispatcher for the Dallas Police Department. He said that he received an anonymous phone call at 3 a.m. on November 24th from a man who knew his name. The caller told him that he knew of the plan to move Oswald from the basement and warned that unless the plans were changed, quote, we are going to kill him, end quote. After Oswald was shot, Grammer claimed to have recognized Ruby as the caller. Grammer believed that Ruby's shooting of Oswald was a planned event. Detective Don Archer testified to the Warren Commission that he said to Ruby, quote, Jack, I think you killed him, end quote. He stated that Ruby looked him straight in the eye and said, quote, well, I intended to shoot him three times, end quote. Seth Cantor believed that Ruby's response to Archer did not suggest a spontaneous reaction and the word intended implied having prior intention. Ruby's explanation for killing Oswald would be exposed as, quote, a fabricated legal ploy, end quote, according to House Select Committee on Assassinations. Ruby wrote a note to attorney Joseph Tannenhall, and it said, quote, Joe, you should know this. My first lawyer, Tom Howard, told me to say that I shot Oswald so that Caroline and Mrs. Kennedy wouldn't have to come to Dallas to testify, okay, end quote. 
Robert Blakely, who was chief counsel for the House Select Committee on Assassinations from 1977 to 1979, said, quote, The most plausible explanation for the murder of Oswald by Jack Ruby was that Ruby had stalked him on behalf of organized crime, trying to reach him on at least three occasions in the 48 hours before he silenced him forever, end quote. Russell Moore, an acquaintance of Ruby, testified to the commission that Ruby expressed no bitterness towards Oswald and called him, quote, a good-looking guy, end quote, comparing him to Paul Newman. Oh, wow. David Shim noted in his book Contract on America that some people claim that Ruby was upset over the weekend of the assassination, while others said that he was not. On Friday night, TV newsman Vic Robertson Jr. saw Ruby at police headquarters and said that he appeared to be anything but under stress or strain. He seemed happy, joyful, and was joking and laughing. Announcer Glenn Duncan also said that Ruby was not grieving and seemed happy that evidence was piling up against Oswald. Shim also suggests that Ruby made a candid confession when giving testimony to the Warren Commission. During his testimony, Ruby teared up when talking about a Saturday morning eulogy for Kennedy, but after composing himself, inexplicably said, quote, I must be a great actor, I tell you that, end quote. Ruby also remarked that they didn't ask me another question. If I loved the president so much, why wasn't I at the parade? And it's strange that perhaps I didn't vote for President Kennedy or didn't vote at all, that I should build up such a great affection for him. Shim also noted several people who knew Ruby who claimed that the patriotic statements which Ruby professed were quite out of character. Ruby's gambling business partner, Harry Hall, told the FBI that Ruby was the type who was interested in any way to make money, and he also said that he could not conceive of Ruby doing anything out of patriotism. Jack Kelly had known Ruby casually since 1943, and he scoffed at the idea of a patriotic motive being involved by Ruby in the slaying of Oswald. He said that he could not see Ruby killing Oswald out of patriotism, but rather for publicity or for money. Ruby's friend Paul Jones told the FBI that he doubted that Ruby would have become emotionally upset and killed Oswald on the spur of the moment. He felt Ruby would have done it for money or to pay off a debt that he owed to the mob. David Shim presented evidence that Mafia leaders Carlos Marcello and Santo Traficani Jr. and organized labor leader Jimmy Hoffa ordered the assassination of Kennedy. Shim cited in particular a 25-fold increase in the number of out-of-state telephone calls from Jack Ruby to associates of these crime bosses in the months before the assassination. The House Select Committee on Assassinations report stated that, quote, most of Ruby's phone calls during late 63 were related to his labor troubles. In the light of the identity of some of the individuals with whom Ruby spoke, however, the possibility of other matters being discussed could not be dismissed, end quote. Bill Bonanno, son of New York Mafia boss Joseph Bonanno, stated in Bound by Honor that he realized that certain Mafia families were involved in the JFK assassination when Ruby killed Oswald, since Bonanno was aware that Ruby was an assistant of Chicago mobster Sam Giacano. In 1963, Sam and Joe Campisi were leading figures in the Dallas underworld. Jack Ruby knew the Campisis and had been seen with them on many occasions. The Campisis were lieutenants of Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss who had reportedly talked of killing the president. On the night before Kennedy was assassinated, Ruby had dinner at the Egyptian lounge run by Joe and Sam Campisi. After Ruby was jailed for killing Lee Harvey Oswald, Joe Campisi regularly visited him. Coming up in a future podcast, we're going to talk about Dorothy Kilgallen, who was a television personality and celebrity reporter. She was permitted to interview Jack Ruby in prison in November 1965. She returned to her New York home after her talk with Ruby, telling her friend Mrs. Earl T. Smith all about it and declaring she was going to break the assassination mystery wide open. She was found dead a few days later, resulting, they said, from an overdose. 
two days later, Mrs. Earl T. Smith was also found dead. Next week on the end of Innocence, the JFK assassination, three funerals were held on Monday, November 25, 1963. Two of the men were buried with dignity and honor, while one was a sad ending to what some have called the most mysterious figure in American history. We will look at the funeral and burial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Why were reporters that showed up to witness Oswald's burial asked to do more than just write about what they saw? And what does a 75-year-old cowboy from Fort Worth, Texas have to do with Oswald's funeral? We'll see you next week.